Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. We're going to John. Chapter 11, I'll start at verse 28. I think we're about February there in, in Israel. Uh, he has been in seclusion, you might say. Lots of people are there, but it's a safe place on the east side of the Jordan River. Uh, he went there because they just about got a hold of him and were going to try him and stone him. And uh, so he, he left town, and he's been there for maybe month and a half, two months. And uh, now he gets the word that Lazarus, his friend, has, is ill. And uh, we know this, we've been hearing the story the last couple of weeks. And he chose to actually wait. And Lazarus was in critical condition. Lazarus very likely had died before the messenger was even sent from Bethany. Bethany is just a couple miles to the east of Jerusalem. So it's right there in the danger zone for him. Uh, these religious leaders, the, the temple authorities and all, uh, they're, just, they're just no more than two miles away. The temple's even on the east side of Jerusalem. And uh, so this is a very dangerous place. He feels led of the Father to go. The disciples uh, are not enthusiastic. Um, they said, uh, one of them says, uh, well, let's go and die with him. And so they trudge up, <laughs> up the uh, 18 miles or so, and they get to Bethany. Jesus waits outside the town. And we saw last week, he had a conversation with uh, one of the two sisters. Uh, you've got two sisters and a brother, all of whom appear to be unmarried, uh, that, that live as a family. And he got one of the sisters, Martha, he had a conversation with her, and we discussed that last week. Now, today, Mary comes, and we see Jesus go to the, to the uh, tomb, and we see him go through emotion, motions. We're going to see anger and tears. Anger and tears. We're going to see these swirl inside of him. And understanding what's going on and what that means to us is what we're going to learn today. Holy Spirit, open us. We want to see Jesus. He is our Lord. He's our rabbi. He's our teacher. He's our risen one. We ask you, Lord, to just open our eyes and our hearts. We, Jesus, if, if we could, we'd follow right behind you. We want you to model for us and show us how to live. We want you to speak to us. We want you to correct us as need be. We want you to encourage us. We want to be like you, and we want to be your disciples in this place, in this time. Empower us, Lord. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. All right, I'll start at verse 28. Martha has just made her wonderful confession. She said, he said, do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord, I have believed. You are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And when she had said this, verse 28, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. 
And then the Jews, and remember, I'll just say it over and over again, this means the religious leaders, it may mean the ultra-Orthodox, but it's, it's talking about that, that elite group of people. The Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly, went out and followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. I'll show you the meanings of those terms in a little bit. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Now that's the verse that many young people, if asked to do a verse of scripture by memory, they, they, will, they will select that one. It's uh, a very famous verse. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. So the, so, but some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now, he was, it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone, and then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, and because of the people standing around, I said it, so that you may believe, they may believe, that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now notice this, verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews, remember who that is? The religious leaders, the, all of these, who came to Mary and saw him, what he had done, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. There are people who absolutely refuse to believe in Jesus Christ, no matter what proof is presented. Do you have such people in your life? Do you know people that no matter what happens, it seems like you do, uh, you, you know, God has answered things, you've talked to them, you've shared with them, but there's something there that they just won't move. They just will not believe. Uh, there's a reason for that, I think. You can explain God's plan of salvation in crystal clear terms, but they say it doesn't make sense to them. They might watch a miracle performed before their eyes, yet they won't repent. There are people who fearlessly acknowledge the, that the Bible warns them about what will happen to them if they die in their present condition, but still refuse to change. Why? What causes a person to refuse to believe? I'm sure there would be a different answer for each person we asked, but over the years, the explanations I've heard or observed all seem to result from a particular decision that person made earlier in life. Most of us, at some point in time, have struggled with or will struggle with doubt. 
And there are many who become honestly confused by all the conflicting opinions about God. You have noticed. There are passionate voices that argue for God and passionate voices that argue against him. And I don't think any one of us escapes getting caught in those debates on occasion. But generally, as the years pass, most of us will come to the conclusion that the existence of God is at least possible, if not probable. Because in truth, it takes more faith to believe there is not a God than to believe there is one. So those who end up firmly rejecting God do so for a reason. And that reason is often hidden from view. Somewhere in their past, a deep, primal decision was made. They asked themselves a question and then answered it in a way that ended their investigation into the truth about the claims of Jesus Christ. And until that answer changes, no amount of evidence will make a difference. In fact, they don't want more evidence. It only worries them. As Jesus looked at the crowd standing around him at Lazarus' funeral, his reaction was surprising. He became visibly angry, and then he began to weep. What did he see that made him do that? He saw people who refused to believe. Today, let's try to understand what causes some individuals to refuse to believe, and then let's decide to do something about it. Come on. I always want you to be able to picture the story. I want you to see it. You know, if, if, wouldn't, wouldn't you, if you could have been in, in Jesus' pocket, wouldn't you like to have been there? You know, or, or just there with Matthew or, or John, somebody just trailing along, watching these things and seeing it. He's our model. We, as we listen to him, as we watch him, and, and so we just want to see the story in our minds again. We want to be able to picture it so we can, in a sense, we can be right there with him. After confessing Jesus in terms that were no less bold or definite than Peter's response at Caesarea Philippi when Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? Martha went back to the village to tell her sister that Jesus had arrived. I just want to just note that quickly. When Jesus was at Caesarea Philippi, he says to Peter, who do you say that I am? You remember, we all know his answer, right? It's just, yes, he said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Go, Peter. Martha outdoes him. She says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, he who is to come into the world. She adds another one, which is the, the second Moses to it. So she, this is a great confession by her. She spoke, to, he, she spoke to her secretly. When Martha went back to the village to tell her sister that Jesus arrived, she spoke to her secretly, saying, the teacher is waiting outside the village, and he's asked that you come here. Uh, the word secretly is there. That's exactly what it means. So she either went, she got, peeked into the house and, and, and got Mary's attention and said, come here, and then whispered to her outside, or she went up into her ear and whispered. There's a lot, people are filling the house, and she speaks to her, and she says, he's here. Apparently, when Martha first learned of Jesus' arrival, she did not inform her sister, but left her sitting in the house with the guests. But as soon as Mary discovered that Jesus was there, she quickly went out to meet him. She he was still waiting at the same place where Martha had met him, outside of town. It seems he wanted to speak to each sister without a crowd of mourners listening to their conversation. But when Mary rushed out of the house, her guests followed, thinking she was going to the cave where Mar Lazarus had been buried to grieve. 
When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell on the ground at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Those are the very same words her sister said to him. Like Martha, Mary was certain that Jesus would have healed Lazarus had he arrived before he died. But also like Martha, she expressed no hope that Jesus could now raise her brother back to life. And then Mary began to sob, as did her guests who had followed her. That's the word. It's, it's loud crying. It's not the wailing stuff. You know, uh, I, a lot of them translate that with the wail, but there's a wailing when there's mourning going on in the Middle East or other places. It's the ha-la-la-la-la. Have you heard that? In fact, there's a word, ha-la-la-la-la. That's the word in Greek. <laughs> so it's not that. It's, but it's, it's, it's convulsive sobbing. It's, it's, it's not tears. It's... And so the woman, she's at his feet, and she sob, starts sobbing, as did her guests who followed her. And so, surrounded by such sorrow, Jesus responded in a surprising way. John says he became angry, so angry that he may have groaned and his body trembled. And then he asked the mourners, where have you put him? And they, asked, they answered, Lord, come and see. Let me, let me stop for a second. Let me explain this. The words that are here in Greek are so awkward that everybody translates them differently because we're embarrassed. We're trying to protect him. We don't, it doesn't make Jesus look good. The first word there is, is used most commonly of a horse when it snorts in anger. So it's that, and I've got to be careful here, I... <laughs> I needed it last night. It's the, it's that, you know, the, the, and we're embarrassed for him. We don't want him to. We don't want to write down Jesus snorted, and, and uh, so you don't do that. So they said he trouble. He was deeply disturbed. You know, it's we're trying to cover this thing, but whatever it was, it was something to the effect of. <clears throat> And it's an angry thing. But Jesus isn't supposed to get angry. And what's he doing getting angry in this way? You know, so we, we, we just make a big, vague thing and leave it there. His response, first of all, is... <clears throat> and then, look at the next one. At that moment, he says, where have you laid him? And as they start to move, tears... And this is not the sobbing. Different word. This one is tears. He starts to tear, is what it says. And so tears begin to run down his face while he's walking toward the tomb. So his first response is he look, and he, he's looking at the people, and he goes, and there's this, <clears throat> and then as he begins to walk, tears begin to pour down his face. Some of the religious leaders who had followed Mary out of the house saw those tears and assumed that they came because of his great compassion for Lazarus. They said to one another, See how he loved him. But others among them reacted very differently. They accused Jesus of being heartless because he'd allowed his friend to die. They asked, could not this man who opened the eyes of him who was blind have kept this man also from dying? Still, They still vividly remember the miracle Jesus had performed only a few months earlier. And they questioned why he hadn't used that same power to rescue Lazarus. Their goal was to attack his character by suggesting that he was cold and loveless. Their perpetual unbelief 
in spite of all the miracles they had seen. Their unwavering hostility, even at a funeral, seems to have infuriated Jesus. And he groaned again while he was walking toward the tomb. Look, I'm I'm taking a different tack. Most times when, when people preach this, what they'll say is, Jesus' heart was just moved with compassion for them. You know, here's poor Mary sobbing at his feet. And Jesus just, and he starts getting into it with, you know, he's, he's sympathizing with her. And that's fine. Does he sympathize with us? Does he feel our pain? Sure, he does. He does. Problem is here, within about three minutes, he knows Lazarus is going to come walking out of the tomb. My guess is he's thinking, what are we all going to have for dinner tonight? You know? Because... He knows what he's going to do. He knows totally what he's going to do. And, and it, it is, he can understand she's hurting for her brother, but she also knows she's going to be hugging him in just about three minutes. So just give us a minute here. So if I were him, I'd be kind of excited. It's like, man, this is going to blow their minds. <laughs> you know? But here's my key. And it is just one linguistic key there. There is, a, there is one word, and it's just a simple word, but it's used about 400 times in the Bible. It's, we translate often, therefore. And the word generally means, based on what I just told you, this happened. And it says, he looked at these mourners, this crowd, this crowd. Actually, the word crowds are, he looked at them, therefore, he got angry again. <clears throat> That's what tells me. Their perpetual unbelief. He groaned again while he was walking toward the tomb. The tomb was carved into the walls of a cave located somewhere near the village. Interestingly, John says it was, there was a stone lying upon the opening to the cave, not in front of it, implying that the entrance was a hole in the ground with steps leading down into the cave. Jesus' command reinforces that image. He told the mourners to lift the stone off the grave, not roll it aside. And there's a word for each. That command alarmed Martha. The thought of having the grave opened and the stench of her brother's decaying body pour out into the crowd was more than she could bear. This really moves my heart. I mean, you know, we all know what happens here in a minute. But this, this woman is standing there and there's a crowd there. There's a lot of people here, and she loves her brother. And it's embarrassing to have that stone lifted off and this horrible odor pour out into that crowd. This is her dying brother. You know, it's it's his dead body. She's and so there's like she she doesn't just say he stinks. She 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 says to him, you know, she's trying to protect him. She, She says, Lord, he smells now. It's the fourth day. She's begging him, don't do this. To which Jesus replied, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Verse 41, 42 there. Then some men stepped forward to lift the stone off the opening to the cave. And as they did, John says, Jesus lifted his eyes and started speaking to the Father. There's, no, there's a, a clear play on words in this one verse. And as they lifted the stone, Jesus lifted his eyes. So they lift, they lift it up, and as he do, he lifts up and begins to talk right there. 
and started speaking to the Father loud enough so that everyone could hear him. He said, Father, I thank you that you hear, heard me. Notice the past tense. That's why I'm translating them. I, I thank you that you heard me, and I know that you always hear me because of the crowd standing around, and he uses the word crowd. I said this so that they might believe that you sent me. Before he performed this miracle, he wanted everyone to understand that the power they were about to observe came from the Father, that, they had been that he had been assigned to do what he was about to do, the father had sent him to that funeral, and he wanted people to understand that the father always heard and answered his prayers. He said these things before he raised Lazarus from the dead, because afterward, everyone would be in such shock, they wouldn't remember a word he said. Verses 43, 44. John selects a very special word to describe Jesus' shout. It's a word that usually describes the roaring sound that is heard when a multitude of people are shouting all at once. In fact, look at all those references. That's basically the way it's used. So Jesus didn't speak to the open tomb. He bellowed out a command. And look what he bellowed. This is, I mean, we, again, this gets translated to try to make sense for us. But look, this is what he said. Lazarus, here, out. That's what he said. Woo! That raises the hair on your arms. <laughs> no explanation is given for this loud command. But Jesus appears to be calling someone who's in another world. And that person in another dimension of existence heard his voice and obediently returned to his body. We are watching the fulfillment of a promise. Jesus said, read this with me, would you? Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That same voice is going to call you out of the grave. You're going to hear the same voice. Now, you'll be in heaven awake with the Lord, but suddenly there'll be a, Stephen, yes, sir, and whoo, and I'm on my way. As we watch Jesus raise Lazarus, we need to remember that someday we too will hear that same voice calling us into our resurrection bodies. And then begins an entire season of ministry, by the way. Based on our faithfulness here, we'll be given a responsibility there. I'm not making that up. It's just what it says. John describes Lazarus' response this way. The one who died came out feet and hands bound with bandages, and his face having been bound around with a cloth. Now, I'm going to tell you what that cloth is for, but I almost left this out. It's a little morbid. The cloth probably went under his chin to keep his jaw from falling open. So they have wrapped his arms. They've wrapped his legs. His face is not entirely covered. He's got a, he's got a, a cloth holding the jaw up uh, so it's in place, and he comes up, apparently up the steps, of this thing out the hole. <laughs> Jesus said, loose him and let him go. Wow. That miracle was so stunning. Anyone with honest doubts was instantly convinced. John says many of the religious leaders who saw it believed in Jesus. How many? Did you see that? Many of them. 
who are these religious leaders? These are the these are these are probably priests. They are they are they are ultra orthodox. The ultra orthodox. They are the they are the religious leaders of the temple and area. These are the these are elite prestigious leaders. And when they see this, it just sifts the crowd, and a whole bunch of them go, "I'm in, I'm in. I'm, this is it. I'm in. I don't care what you. Th- I'm, I'm in. I'm going with him. I'm going with him." Wouldn't that do you? Yeah, that right about there, I'm in. But we see us. John says many uh, leaders who saw it believed in Jesus, but then we see a strange refusal to believe grip others. He adds, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus had done. In other words, they hurried back to Jerusalem so they could report the incident to the authorities. The difference between those two responses is confusing. One person believes, another wants him arrested. Why? Before we attempt to answer that question, let's first try to understand the emotions Jesus felt that day. Anger and tears. Initially, he expressed great anger, but then tears began to pour down his face. I don't think he was grieving over the death of his friend or even sympathizing with Mary who was sobbing at his feet. He knew what he was about to do, what infuriated him and broke his heart, was what he saw when he looked into the eyes of those standing behind her. He could see the determined hatred in some of them, and he knew exactly what that hatred would produce. It would spread to others and cause many to stumble in their faith. He could, he could see into eternity and knew the misery those individuals would experience. But he also saw the horrible devastation that would come to Jerusalem and the entire nation in only a matter of decades. You and I have to have perspective. This is how you love your enemies. You can have situations. I mean, these people are sitting there wanting to kill him. There are people who are going to turn on their heel, and the moment they get a chance, they're going out, they're going to report him, and, I, and, and so the temple police can basically come see if they can find him. He has to leave and go north. He goes north about 14 miles to a little, a little city on the edge of the wilderness uh, uh, and, and, and hangs out there for, until Passover. He has to get out. What, what would cause you to do that? He, he looks at them and he realizes some of you are going to win this battle. Some of you are going to resist and refuse right into eternity. And you see, we think it ends at death. It doesn't end at death. It does not end at death. If you leave here without God, you will not have him on the other side. I don't think there's any place in in the universe apart from his presence. But the darkness, the things, all of that go right with you into the next stage. And he grieves over that. Our worst enemy, who can wish that on anyone? I don't care what they've done to you. I don't care how stupid it's been. I don't care how cruel it's been. I'm not excusing it. I'm not saying they were right. I'm just telling you, do you really wish that on them? Is that what you want for your punishment? Is that what you want for justice? Do you want that eternally for them? Boy, when you look at it that way, it just starts weeping for them. You start, the compassion comes over you. That's what he's seeing. He's looking at me and he goes, some of you are going to win this battle. And I think he just, the anger of what they'll do to others, they're going to, they're going to take others with them. And they're also going to bring upon that nation uh, the, 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 the Roman army. Uh, see, they don't want Jesus for Messiah. But within four decades, they will accept someone else. 
and they'll rise up and they'll have a revolution against the Romans and the, and, and the Romans will send the 10th and the 15th legions or whatever and they will come and a million and a half people will die. I mean, they'll have about half a million in the Galilee and, and the Perea and all of the surrounding areas, Judea, and then most of the people will flee into the city, into the city of Jerusalem with the big walls. And then finally those walls will be breached and the Romans will kill them all. They get a million people and I won't go into detail. It's just ugly. When we go to Israel, one of the things we, we see places where they, where they came after them. It was just, ah. Uh. All of that happens when he sees what's in their eyes. And his first response is, oh. And then he just starts crying. Yes, he knew what he was about to do, but he knew it wouldn't be enough for some of them. Loving enemies, it's easier to understand Jesus' anger than it is his tears. The stubborn refusal to believe in, in him by some must have been enormously frustrating, particularly because many of them were leaders who would damage their followers. Yet he walked toward the tomb, weeping for those enemies, which shows that he separated in his mind the sin from the sinner. He hated their decision to reject him, but he still loved the person who made it. That's what made his anger so righteous. He could see beyond how they were responding to him to what would happen to them if they didn't repent. In fact, those emotions reveal that he, did, he hadn't given up hope. I think if he had no hope, there'd be no emotion at all. But he's, he's actually come up there for the sole purpose, yes, of raising Lazarus, but above all, I think, to win. He knows he's going to win a lot of these really resistant uh, elite religious people. And he loves them. While they're planning to kill him, he loves them. And he will. He hasn't given up hope that he still uh, will win their hearts, that it was possible. He wasn't wrong. Listen to a report John gives about what took place only a few weeks later. A large crowd of Jews, remember, religious leaders, ultra-Orthodox priests, then learned that he was there in Jerusalem for Passover. They came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. I mean, you want to gather a crowd, just have Lazarus stand there, you know? But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. They're not... Now, that is settled determined unbelief. When you're not only going to kill Jesus, you're going to kill the guy he raised from the dead. You're in it. I mean, you're committed. I mean, this is, this is more. And I, I don't, in this, in this message, talk about why they did it, but there is an answer to that. Jesus explains it. Hidden reasons. As we said earlier, there are people who absolutely refuse to believe in Jesus Christ, no matter what proof is presented. And we, and, and we said the reason is often hidden from view. At some point in the past, that person asked a question and then answered it in a way that ended their investigation. Let's listen to some of the most common questions and then listen to the answers Jesus gave. Not so we can criticize those who, who answered wrongly, but so that we know how to help. Jesus' example at Lazarus' funeral challenges us. He never gave up. He showed us that even the most resistant person may still have a change of heart. Here are 
Six possible questions that may have become an obstacle to those who refuse to believe. Question number one, would you read this out loud with me? Who will reject me if I follow Jesus? Can I bear to be ridiculed or abandoned by those I love or need? When, when the light dawns, when we begin to, the Holy Spirit does his work and shows us, this is true. This business about God sending his son for me is true. There is a savior. The mind goes through a really quick calculation. A question is asked in effect, and it's answered just like that. This is not a long process. This is an instantaneous thing. Intuitively, we sense, ah, if I do that, there are some people going to be really unhappy with me. I see this week after week when I give an invitation to receive Christ. I saw it last week. I'll, 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 it looks like this. Somebody standing there will do this. I don't know who this is, but they don't like it. But this person wants him anyway. It happens all the time. It doesn't it? And there are people who, because of this, won't. They're afraid. Financially, they could be destitute. Emotionally, they, not, they, just may, they can't bear to have everybody turn on them. I mean, they're emotionally just hanging on now. And the fear inside is, if I receive him, I'm gonna get, I could get thrown out. Let me tell you, the early church there in Jerusalem, when we read the book of Acts, one of the amazing things we saw as we went through the book of Acts is that the early church had so many people being thrown out of their families, women divorced by their husbands, probably husbands divorced by their wives, it could be done, and, and then you have people losing their jobs, we had apparently fields burned, you had all kinds of stuff. And so when this kind of devastation came, the church made a commitment that if some, they throw you out, we'll take you in. That's the word koinonia. That's what it means in that, uh, that passage when it talks about they, they took up offerings and gave. If... if we will not let you starve. We will not let you be abandoned. If they throw you out, we take you in just like you were for our flesh and blood. And that's why the church could grow over those years. In the first three years, they estimate 100,000 Christians in Jerusalem. That's why it could happen, because people are getting punished left and right, but the church took them in. There's a very real price to pay for a lot of people. If we say yes to Jesus, what's going to happen to us? Let's, let's read Jesus' answer here. In Matthew 5, verse 11 and 12. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Question number two, let's read this. What must I give up to possess eternal life? What will I lose if I choose to follow him? We have our ambitions. We have our plans, we have our goals, we have our needs. I want to be safe, I want to be rich, I want to succeed at life, I, I, I want to be popular. We have deep things we, we really want, and that calculation, that, that mind, in just the wink of an eye goes through the process and goes, oh, this, I just know if I say yes to Jesus, he's going to take me to the mission field. And he's going to take me to Borneo. 
you're, you don't know, that's, that was mine. I was sure I'd go to Borneo, and now I see Borneo's gorgeous. Anyway, what do you know? That fear. Do this. Jesus won't ever let you be married. You'll be single forever. Doesn't it come? You'll be so lonely. You'll be miserably lonely. Don't do it. Lots of people will say, well, I, I kinda, I'm going to receive him, but I want to wait till I'm older. You know, I want to wait till, and then when I'm really old on my deathbed, I'm planning on praying, you know, so I get into heaven. I, but uh, but if, I, I just don't want to spoil my life, you know, uh, in the process. Isn't that it? I, I mean, this just takes a matter of faith. I'll just throw this in quickly. But his plan for you, whatever it is, is a good one. And it, what you're doing is aligning your life with the way he made you. You'll be extremely successful at it, extremely effective at it. I'm not saying it's easy, but you, when you're done, when you end your life, you're going to be deeply satisfied. He will have provided and protected for you all your life. That's the deal. That's how it works. Let's read his answer there, Mark 8. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever wishes to lose his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. That last phrase, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Boy, does he talk about it. He put it on, on out there where it belongs. Question number three, let's read that. What have I done that God can't forgive? What have I done? Now, you'd be surprised what hides in the hearts of people. And sometimes you're dealing with somebody, and you can, you can deal with sometimes old family relatives, you know, and they're coming near to death, and they're getting so close to it, and you keep talking about the Lord, and they just absolutely close you down. No, I won't. And you think to yourself, what is wrong with you? Are you stupid? I mean, why don't you see this? I mean, look, you've only got a few little while before you're dead. <laughs> what have you got to win by this? What, can, what do you think you're going to win by being stubborn right to the tomb? I guarantee you, there's a decision that's been made. Something is hidden in the heart. And this is one of them. Did you hear what it is? What have I done that God can't forgive? You'd be amazed at what people have done. I've had people come talk to me who were snipers in the military. And they've killed numerous people. And their conscience is just miserable. They're just going, Pastor, I... I, I he, I, I can't forgive myself for this. I just can't forgive myself. I, have, I had one person who worked for the CIA, and he'd been on assignments where he had to assassinate people. And he says, I, I, I don't know how to... I can't, how can I ever be forgiven for what I've done? They live with terrible consciences, people who've done hit and run. And they've left people by the side of the road wondering if they were still alive. And they're still running from it, and they're ashamed of it, and they're... It bears and weighs on them the rest of their life. As people have been unfaithful to their spouse and, 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 and she, she or he doesn't know it. And that thing just grips them. And they think, why did I do that? Why did I do that? And they come to despise themselves. And they feel, God can't forgive people like that. I've had them say, Lord, uh, Pastor, I, they can, I know God loves your you got a lot of nice people here, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've done. Look, let's read Jesus' answer. Look, look there at Luke 22. Let's, go, let's read that. 
He took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. That's where you That's this first communion service. That's there in the upper room. He takes the cup and he holds it up and he says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. What I'm about to do tomorrow, uh, on, at, on that Friday when he was crucified, what I'm going to do on the cross will bring you the new covenant. Now, the new covenant is not just a pretty phrase. It is a covenant specifically discussed, discussed in the Old Testament. Let's read a passage from it. Jeremiah 31, 31. Let's read this. They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Did you see that? The new covenant is this promise to you. You will all know me from the least to the greatest. And their, my, their sin from the least to the greatest I will remember no more. You just have to come to grips with that. The power of the cross of Jesus Christ. In that moment, you see, that's the horror of Gethsemane. It isn't just, it isn't, and I don't mean to make light of it. They were going to, I've been reading, I'm, I'm actually, I'm memorizing Isaiah 53 and, and all. And it says he was marred more than any man, beyond recognition. And it's just, oh, gee whiz. I mean, it's horrible, the language of what, what happened to Jesus. What was, Jesus took upon himself the sin of the world. All of it. All of it. So it's, he's already died for you. He's already died for all your sin. The question is, will you receive it? You don't add to the load. It's not like, uh-oh, shell's coming. Boy, this is going to make it a lot worse. Ooh. He's already done that. Will, will shell receive what he's done? Do you understand? Number four, let's read this. What have I done that I can't forgive? That really ties in with what I've just been saying. Let's read the answer, John 3. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That picture is so vivid. As Moses lifted up a snake on a stick in the wilderness... Nothing about snakes is good. He lifts a snake up of these, one of these venomous things that's been biting everybody, and he holds it up, and if you look at the snake, the poison in you goes away. Jesus, the, Paul says it this way, He who knew no sin became sin for us. Christ took the evil, all of it. You've got to get a hold of that. He took it all. He became, he paid this horrible price that we might be forgiven and free. Number five. Let's read this. What has God done that I refuse to forgive? Now that's, that's another one. There have been prayers that seem to have gone unanswered. There have been people in the family that have died. There have been tragedies that occur. And the reaction is really angry. Why? Didn't God help? I called on him. I asked him. I did everything I knew. And he, and the picture in the person's mind is, and God turned a deaf ear. God didn't care. And they then make a judgment about the heart of God. He's cold. He's indifferent. He's loveless. 
He doesn't care what happens to me. And that rage, that rage, there are people are determined to not believe in God. And in, this, in their own sense, they're, in, they're annihilating him. They're punishing him this is for being this kind. And they're punishing a God in their mind that's a cruel one, that's a harsh one. You look at a lot of the prominent atheists and you listen to the kind of God they'll describe. And they describe this harsh, arbitrary, uh, deterministic God who picks some and not others, burns them all in hell, you know, if they don't have a chance. I mean, that's the God they hate. Well, I do too. I don't like that God either. The God I have is like Jesus. <laughs> it's a different God. It, let me give you an illustration. This is kind of silly, but I'll use it. I had, I mean, it's not silly. It was real. I had a guy come up to me. I'd been preaching that day on the fig tree, you know, where, where Jesus came. And he, and he comes up to a fig tree, and the fig tree has no figs. And, and then it's, the reference is made, and there, it's not the season for figs. So he comes up, he's looking through the leaves, and there's no figs, and only leaves, it says, only leaves. And then he curses that poor tree. It's, and fries the trees. The next day, it's just gone, you know? And he comes by, and, and as they walk by, you know, Peter and all are noticing this dead fig tree. He said, whoa. And he says, you can do that too, you know, if you have faith. And here's how the man interpreted it. He said... He thought that Jesus got so angry at that poor tree because it didn't have figs, and it wasn't even the season for figs. So he saw male rage. He saw a Jesus who raged and fried that poor little thing with his power. I'm not following that guy. I can't trust that guy. He's got a temper. Right? You see it? So when I tell him what this was, well, first of all, when a fig tree puts out leaves, it puts out its figs at the same time. In fact, we always go to Israel in the spring. You, and some of you, if you go in this one, you're going to get it. When we go by fig trees, I always go, see? See how right I am? You know, because there's the leaves and there's the little figs, you know? What it said is it had none. Now, you have to, well, you have to know this. The fig tree is the big tree. The fig tree is the symbol of the spiritual leadership of Israel. And the Messiah had come, and he was about to come into the temple and inspect it. He was about to see if the leaders of his nation had produced spiritual fruit. He would find none, and therefore the curse would come. The whole thing is prophetic. When I explained that to the man, he came up and he said, I never heard that before. He said, I want to receive the Lord. That lie, that deception, that confusion on the character of God, on the character of God, is what held him back. What has God done that you can't forgive? There are things I can't explain. There are things that you may never understand in this lifetime, but I can tell you this. The heart of God is pure. I don't know why things have happened. I don't, there's things in my own life. I don't understand everything, but I know this. Here's what I know, and we're going to see it in the verse. Read this with me, John 14. He who has seen me has seen the Father. I trust Jesus. And as I watch him, the kindness and the mercy and the grace that's in him, the love and the purity that's in him, I trust him. And he says, my heavenly Father is exactly like that. Exactly like that. So when I don't understand something, I don't understand it, but I know I trust him. You hear that? 
number six. Let's read this. What has someone done to me that I refuse to forgive? This is a very important matter. The Bible teaches this. Now, do with this as you want. I hear people explain away these passages and say they don't really mean what you don't believe your lion eyes kind of thing. Uh, I'm sorry. The Bible says this, that if I will not give grace, if I hold on bitterly and judge others, I will not receive grace. Just deal with it. It's what it says. So rather than fight it, I've decided to do it. Simple as that. So I am, and, and I have a tendency as a person to remember the offenses against me and hold on to them. So I have a daily chore of just shoveling, as it were, and, and cleaning out my heart, of just getting the, the anger out and blessing people and releasing that junk. Why? I want grace. I want them to have grace. I don't want this garbage hurting us all. But I have to constantly deal with that heart. Keep it, keep it out of there. One quick illustration. I, I was praying for a woman. This is years ago. And uh, I was praying for a woman at, at a conference on, receive, on the Holy Spirit. And she wanted to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And we, she sat down on the chair. And I'm praying with her and had some others around and people in the room. And, uh, you know, you can tell when you lay hands on someone, whether, in a sense, whether it goes in. <laughs> you can feel the power move, I should say. You know, either it does or it doesn't. And right then, it was like praying for this podium. I mean, there was nothing. Just flat. Absolutely flat. I'm laying in there. Hey. <laughs> I'm... Finally, I said, Lord. And he says, he says to me, ask her if she's forgiven. If she, holds, if she harbors bitterness against anyone. So I said, ma'am, I... Not trying to accuse you of anything, just but I just felt the word, the Lord. Uh, have you? Is there anyone you're bitter at or resentful toward? She looked kind of. No, nobody at all. No, not can't think of anybody. Okay. <laughs> nothing. Absolutely nothing. Lord says, ask again. Ma'am, I'm not trying to just bring up old stuff, but I said, is there anything in there? Anyone at all? that you just a little bit angry with, you know? I mean, no, nobody at all. Well, nothing happened, as you can imagine, and she finally walks out. And the minute she left the door, a lady in the front row came up to me, and she said, that woman lied to you. <laughs> he said, she has not spoken to her sister in 30 years. And I thought, you lied to me, you know? You can't lie to God. God's just going, nope, won't touch this one with a stick. You know, if I harbor bitterness, listen to me, it, God, it will stop the flow of God to me. You have to open the hand and forgive if you want to receive. It will, it, it's, one, it's a key thing. So let's read his, the verse that Jesus says here, uh, Mark 6, Matthew 6, pardon me. For if you forgive others... For their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. This is not works righteousness. There's something about the human heart that has to let go. How can we help? No one can change another person's will. Not even God will do that. 
But there are ways we can help someone who has been caught in the grip of fearful, angry, shameful, or selfish decision. Seldom have those decisions been made with full understanding. Often, they were made because the enemy deceived that person. Here are a few guidelines to empower us to help release those who refuse to believe and remain patient while we wait. Number one, remember spiritual warfare. When you're praying for people, remember there's an enemy that holds tight. So don't just, don't just go before God and go, Oh, God, get my father to the Lord. Let the Holy Spirit show you what to pray and pray with authority. In the name of Jesus, those things that are assaulting my dad, the things that have lied to him, the things, the wounds that have happened, the shame that may be there, free that man. Free the man. Use, use authority when you pray. Number two, prophetic living. Unreasonable kindness. Undeserved forgiveness. The joy of knowing Christ. Live out grace. Live out kindness. I'll, I'll get one quick illustration. I had an, uh, a, a great uncle. And my great uncle was a, was a talented man, but a man who, who remembered every offense against him and harbored it. And so as time went on, he, he, he became alienated from every single member of the family, except my mother, who the only reason it wasn't my mother is she just refused to be offended. She just kept reaching out to that man. And I mean, it was a rough ride. I got, I got physically wounded and everything else in the process. But in the course of it, when my, that man, he was into a, another kind of religion, another sort of thing. But my mom won my great uncle. And before he died, he confessed Christ. A pastor, a Baptist pastor. We were praying our heads off as he was in a care center dying. And, 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 and the Baptist pastor got in there and led my uncle to Christ. That's a hard ride. That's a hard ride. But my mother had refused. You will not offend me. You will not offend me. You will not, I will not let you go. She just kept reaching out, and she won him. Decide to watch for a lifetime. When it's your family and loved ones and, and people God put on your heart, we just don't, there's not, a, there's not a, 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 a time you quit. And God's guidance, word of knowledge and word of wisdom. Meanwhile, we need to remember a promise Jesus spoke after someone refused to believe. He said, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are impossible. It was a rich man who didn't want to let go of his riches. That's what held him. That was the decision that held him. Say that last statement with him, with me. With, pardon me, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Let's do it again. With people, this is impossible. But with God, what's possible? Even the hardest heart you know. Even the most resistant person you know. You never close it off. It's not your place. He will always say, with God, all things are possible. Would you stand with me? Blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the Lord.
Let me just ask right now, as we're just reflecting, is there anyone today who has been a person who has refused to believe? You may have answered one of these questions out of fear, anger, or actually thinking that this life is all there is. But having heard another answer, you'd like to change. You feel the Holy Spirit drawing you to Jesus, and you want to say yes. Let me ask this. You'd rather have the favor of God than the favor of people. You'd rather have treasure in heaven than here. You believe Jesus' cross paid for your sins. You paid for all of them. You're ready to lay hold of that cross and hang on. If God forgives you, you'll forgive you. No matter what you've done, if God forgives you, you will forgive you. You choose to stop judging God. No matter what happened, no matter how unpleasant the situation was, you're simply going to stop judging him and trust that he's good and he's as kind as Jesus. And you're willing to forgive. Anyone today, you're willing to forgive, not excuse what was done to you. Not, not sort of say, oh, it was all right. It's not all right. It was probably horrible. That's why it's stuck so long. But you're willing to forgive it. And what forgive means is let go of the judgment. You're saying, I'm not your judge anymore. God will deal with you. I wish he, to, he will win you. But I'm not going to sit in judgment of you anymore. Just bow your heads one moment. Is there anybody who needs to say yes to one of those questions? You just, there's, there's, a, there's a, a moment you've been hard, that things have, it's, it's blocked you, but you're letting go right now in response to that. You're gonna, there's a forgiveness thing, there's a, of yourself, of others, of God. Who, would you hold your hand up if that's you? I'll just agree with you for a moment. Give it an opportunity. Yes, praise God. Yes, yes, yes. This is important. The word's been preached. Faith is here. Yes. And we can reach out and respond. Yes. Praise you, Holy Spirit. Come, just move. Yes, I see your hand. Yes, I see yours and yours. Praise God. Holy Spirit, right now, just pluck the thorn out of the soul. Just pluck that thorn out of that soul. It's tormented. Free them right now, oh God. Yes, praise God. Free them right now. Yes, blessed be the Lord. I see yes in your hand. Praise you, Jesus. Blessed be God. Blessed be God. Yes, I see your hand. Praise God. Holy Spirit, thank you right now for doing a deep work. Old decisions have been, had been made. Wrong answers had been given. Misguided, deceived, confused, sometimes just plain selfish decisions. We let them go right now. We let them go. And our answer is, Lord Jesus, we do believe. We don't understand it all. We believe. Come and grace us with faith. Open our hearts. Church, let's pray together. Particularly if you've raised your hand, let's just, just pray with me if you would. My Heavenly Father, this day, I lay down my wrong decisions. Those old things that have held me. The thorn that was in my soul. This day, I confess Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. I believe his cross is powerful. 
He has, he has broken the power of sin. All of it. All of mine. Because of him. I am forgiven and dearly loved. Because of him. I have a new start. This day, I choose to forgive. To be a person of grace. I stop being the judge. I stop rehearsing the offense. I am no longer a victim. I'm a child of God. I have a destiny and a calling. No one can take that from me. God is my Father and loves me dearly. I will not fear any longer. Blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, just flood that heart right now with faith. May the eyes open and the ears hear. May the heart be soft and tender. May the power of the Holy Spirit come on you, beloved. Just refreshing you. May that depression be broken. The sadness, the loneliness, the emptiness. I just feel right now for somebody, you need to know you have a future and a hope. The Lord says his plans for you are for good. This thing has so crippled. This thing has held your gut and, and, and made you sad and lonely. It's left you with no future in, as far as you're concerned. God says, I know the plans I have for you, plans for good and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. As you let this go, as you embrace Christ with your whole heart, surrender fully and simply trust him with every fiber in your being, God will take you by the hand and you have a new future, a brand new future in front of you. You cannot look behind you to see what's coming. You have to see a brand new thing because of what God is doing. Blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the Lord. If you've prayed that, if you agree with that prayer, would you say, yes, Lord? Yes, Lord. Blessed be God. Lord Jesus, we love you. We love you. We love you. And as we watch you, we watch the, the, the anger at unbelief and then the tears that flow of compassion for us. We trust you and can follow you forever. Thank you for our salvation. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.